Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome. 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 Hey everybody, welcome back to the Anthony and Todd show once again. I am your host Trevor. And I am Vincent. And uh, we're coming at you with a semi-regular recording schedule. Very exciting stuff, I know. Uh, Not like we've ever had one of those before, that's for sure. Yeah, never. Never before. Never again. Nobody ever has, ever. There's never been a schedule, it's just coincidence. (laughs) (laughs) The train is not on a schedule. It's just a series of coincidences. <laughs> that just sounds like it's just going to crash constantly. It, it that's, the, that's pretty scary when you think about it. it. I don't might. like that. We need order. <laughs> Order's good. Thinking about it. Or else you just get trains going everywhere. Off the track. They don't even on need the land. <laughs> uh, t- Thanks for joining us for the train episode. It's actually more of a uh, jazz-filled episode today. Uh, We've got three reviews of projects that came out uh, earlier this year. Uh, Again, we wanted to talk about before the end of the year list. Uh, So without further ado, today we're going to be covering Bad Bad Not Good's latest album, Talk Memory, the new James Blake, Friends That Break Your Heart, and the Floating Points, Pharaoh Sanders, and London Symphony Orchestra collaboration project, Promises. It's a James sandwich on... Rye. Jazz bread. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> or rye. I don't know. Does rye no. taste like jazz? No, I think jazz probably tastes like cinnamon raisin. <laughs> I don't think I like jazz anymore. Well, I sure do. <laughs> Yay! First up, here's our thoughts on the latest Bad Bad Not Good record, Talk Memory. It's been five years since the release of Bad Bad Not Good's album 4, an excellent fusion of jazz, electronic music, and hip-hop. It was their mix of loop-based jazz and layering that brought a lot of appeal to this record and set it apart from its peers. In a way, it kind of felt amateurish, not that I could play it any better than them, but the age of its players and the knowledge that they brought from their particular tastes felt really different from what anyone else was doing at the time. Instead of playing hard and fast jazz music, as I feel like the parameters for what is and isn't jazz have kind of become rigid in the past decade or so. Bad Bad Not Good just approached all music with jazz training and a good ear. After all, Bad Bad Not Good started off doing jazz, Odd Future, and Zelda covers on YouTube, so it's only natural that they would bring more of a sample-friendly sound to the table. After the success of 4, the group took about two years off from recording, finally releasing the single Goodbye Blue with Jonah Yano. When they finally got back into the studio to record for Talk Memory, Chester Hansen says it was the quickest recording session they've ever done. If 4 was a culmination of all of the group's influences up to that point, it only makes sense that over a five-year period, the group and its members would gain new influences and experiences to draw from. I think that's what Talk Memory represents to me, maturing and growth. This is a very mature album, and that's kind of a lot of bad words. Yeah, just (laughs) and crude humor. (laughs) (laughs) This is a very mature album, and that's kind of what I don't like about it. In a sense, this is an epic soundtrack-like jazz record, similar to that of Kamasi Washington in certain elements. It has a lot of heart and soul that went into the production of this record, and you can hear it in every track. But what made me fall in love with Bad Bad Not Good on 4 isn't here. Or at least not in the same way. 4 was a hybrid with elements of dance and hip-hop and some 
good vocal features. A lot of the most memorable moments off 4 were the synths and the coldness they provided to the tracks. Matthew Tavares left the group in 2019 after 4. I'm not saying he was the heart and soul of the group or anything, I'm just saying his leaving plus time has altered the DNA into a more contemporary jazz sound with funk roots. This is a great album which Bad Bad Not Good changed his course into full on jazz craftsmanship. Talk Memory's opening track and first single really show how much growth and change the band has undergone over their five-year hiatus. It begins slowly and quietly with some otherworldly synth work from producer Floating Points, who we'll talk about a little later in the podcast. The main motif here sounds haunting, almost extraterrestrial, like something from another dimension is trying to get in touch with you through your stereo. As the track grows, it adds in Leland Witty on sax until finally just breaking loose into this frantic drum-filled breakdown. The whole track just goes nuts with improv until it starts to slow down again, leaving us with this same haunting melody as before. My favorite touch of the track is how it glitches and cuts out at the end, as if whoever or whatever was trying to communicate with me has lost connection. When this track was first released as a single earlier this year, I didn't quite get it, or really like it, but here as an opening track and seeing what follows, I feel like it makes perfect sense now. Signal from the Noise is part jazz dream and part funk nightmare with the hectic fuzzy bass lines consuming the opening atmosphere keys and saxophone as the intro ramps up so does the bass until it fully demolishes all the atmosphere in its path to make way for a new funky beginning then the full-on rock oriented section ends leading back to more atmospheric territory but now the signal is falling out it's almost like the environment of the beginning has been polluted to a shell of itself by the fuzzy, hectic baseline. Another favorite moment for me is City of Mirrors. Uh, here we're first to introduce to the snippet of the main motif from Beside April through Brazilian jazz legend Arthur Verakai. His arrangement here is exquisitely smooth over top of Alexander Sawinski's light drumming. Sawinski's musicality has always been one of my favorite parts of Bad Bad Not Good's past efforts, and he's definitely not slacking here at all. Even on a more hip-hop-inspired track, he still incorporates that jazz style of drumming, something I'd akin to Dave Grohl breaking the mold by using funk drumming techniques when he played in Nirvana. Uh, City of Mirrors continues through these flourishing yet very sterile chromatic keys, painting imagery of walking through a futuristic hidden city made of literal reflective surfaces. I even pick up some inspiration from that larger-than-life cityscape of George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, one of my favorite pieces of classical music. The drums on City of Mirrors are perfect. They take up so much space that helps carry the momentum of the track, propelling the audience further and getting them prepped for the adventure on the way. The keys on the hook are light, but you can tell how large they are. It just mixes just so perfectly that it doesn't take away from the heart of the drums and the soul of the strings, lying somewhere beneath, but with just the amount of space to make them feel momentous. Falling City of Mirrors is my absolute favorite track on the album, beside April. Verakai's string melody comes back in full force this time and drives us through this track over a very lighthearted guitar. Verakai takes some obvious influence from Indian music and ragas, which is unique for a Bad Bad Not Good track. Joining the lineup here is jazz and hip-hop drummer Kareem Riggins, who makes some incredible drum breaks with only a single snare drum, which is just so incredibly 
bizarre to me. I guess there's a story where he only needed the snare drum, didn't even want the rest of the kit. So that just goes to show his talent. Uh, This whole song has a really earthy world music feel, which is why I like it so much. In the middle of the track, in typical Bad Bad Not Good fashion, there's this huge improv moment with an elastic, wet guitar sound that gets to twist up the time signature and rhythm a little bit. The whole track is a lot of fun, and I return to it often as a standalone. The guitar on the opening of Love Proceeding beautifully transcends to a string arrangement. It's like you're gracefully falling down a hole. Each element of the arrangement has something to break your fall for the next section. There are no sudden 90 degree turns, just beautifully played section after section leading towards a cold end with the strings. Bad Bad Not Good directs their audience in the right direction with no need for surprises to make it interesting and fun. The Beside April reprise is just a nice chaser on the L. This is essentially an alternate piano version of the original track that Hanson made up at his mom's house. A very romantic harmony of keys and strings dance together in a skeletal environment to give it a different feel from the the earlier track. Finally, Talk Meaning is the most contemporary jazz track on here, complete with more difficult arrangements and heavy solo passages. The final set off to show off skill before ending with Distant Harp, which provides a final moment to reflect on the album and the roller coaster you're guided on throughout. To me, the biggest difference between Talk Memory and Bad Bad Not Good's previous works is their complexity of composition. I would say with full confidence that this is the group's most complex record to date, and I think a big part of that has to do with the writing process this time around. This is their first record without original keyboardist Matty Tavares, and as Chester Hansen has stated, they were trying to make sure the three remaining members could cover all the parts. In addition, he said that instead of all writing together as a group, many of the songs here were written by individual members and then expanded upon in the studio. It's easy to see how things can kind of get out of hand that way or grow in complexity. Ultimately, I think that creative freedom that they displayed is what makes Talk Memory a success to me. With each record or song, Bad Bad Not Good continues to break down the barriers of what jazz music is. Jazz, I feel like, used to be a genre of progression and pushing forward, but in recent years I've found many people lamenting the loss of jazz, or whatever they consider true jazz. As the saying goes, jazz isn't dead, it's just moved to a new address. It continues to live on through other genres like hip-hop, R&B, rock, especially prog rock, and musical theater. I found an interesting quote by ethnomusicologist Matthew Neal that says, Bad Bad Not Good will continue to represent jazz, even as the jazz community and the group themselves wish that they did not speak for jazz. Put simply, Bad Bad Not Good is jazz if people think they are. I found that many people try to put the group into a box of what they are and aren't, but at the end of the day, the group is creating music they're proud of, and every time they come out with a record, they continue to wow me specifically because of their approach to composition or recording. Go for it. Now here's our review of the latest James Blake project, Friends That Break Your Heart and Friends That Smell My Fart. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I hate you. (laughs) You're canceled. (laughs) When Say What You Will dropped at the end of the summer, I was enthralled by James Blake's first single in a while. Blake's previous projects have tended to lean into overproduction, not to a fault, but as a selling point while his lyrics fared more on the whiny, sad boy side. But Say What You Will changed all that. Well, not all of it, but most of it. 
The production was minimalist, giving the illusion that Blake was performing for a small crowd in his living room. The lyrics still had a bit of a nerdy quality to them, but that vulnerability is what makes Blake stand out. He sings about finding peace with his place in the music world, especially as he sees himself as an aging artist. The song goes from a sotto voce intro that Blake can barely hit to a soaring falsetto at the end, both high points of the song. As an artist in his 30s who has four albums and countless production credits under his belt, he has nothing left to prove. The single was not only exciting within itself, but as an omen of what was to come. I hoped the rest of this album would follow suit with the first single. The minimalist production allowed Blake's voice and lyrics to really shine, and for the most part, the album delivered. Friends That Break Your Heart really grows on you. I feel like I dissect a new part of the project each listen. Similar how James Blake is broken apart on the cover, peeled into different parts. His last album, Assume Form, was a good album with some serious same-samey issues when it came to the writing. Blake's insecurities were on display in a way that made him seem unrelatable. His paranoia in his relationship isn't really examined fully enough and it made him seem whiny at times. This new album does not have that issue. It reveals James as a character you can only emphasize with in his performance, but with his story that he's crafting in each track. The lyricism is perfectly blended. It highlights the atmosphere built in each track. I think it's reminiscent of some of the better moments off of some form. It's minimal and each detail given by James is used to build an emotion, but nothing is covered in explicit detail. He tells you just enough to allow the heart of the album to shine through. I like how this album feels segmented rather than trying to craft a big narrative. Like it's just telling these loose stories that could overlap in theme or maybe some similar plot points throughout, but overall it builds the most attention on the emotion of Blake rather than at how it builds a world and where he falls in it. The opening track and final single, Famous Last Words, sees Blake in disbelief of himself ever having a relationship with this unnamed person and finally shedding off their influence in his life. His melodies are the highlight as he sings over these climbing synths and eerie nothingness. Other production highlights include the ice-cold pizzicato plucks in Frozen, allowing room for Suave and Jid's verses to take center stage. This track really reminds me of Assume Form's Andre 3000 collab, Where's the Catch? Blake continues the initial tone of the album with his hook and his opening verse, but Jid and Suave are able to alter the narrative while staying on course. James' own emotions have him frozen in place at the start. Suave kind of revolves around this subject with his star-making performance. He starts out kind of funny where he talks about he and Jid got James Blake turned at JJ's in Atlanta, which... James Blake being turned is either the funniest thing or the saddest thing. I think it's kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> I bet he's just wild. <laughs> I bet he is, too. <laughs> he's the friend that breaks your heart in the end <laughs> by getting too drunk and then getting lost. Then his verse quickly spirals into the surreal, which... Jid and him getting killed at a gas station, him questioning his own story and his own sanity, then saying, I'll kill you if I'm famous and not crazy. This has him feeling frozen out of paranoia or rage, which almost leads to like a purgatory light atmosphere, completely turning a 180 on James's original concept of being frozen in your emotions. A later track on the album, Lost Angel Nights, features what I can only describe as Undertale synths, creating a wintry night atmosphere for Blake to wander about through lost time with a friend, and who's to blame that they've drifted apart? 
The title track is perhaps the most lyrically intriguing and relatable song on the album, though. Blake even explicitly states that no matter how many lovers have come and gone into his life, he's still haunted the most by the ghost of friends in old photographs. The loss of friends is something that everyone has or will experience, and whether the drifting was intentional or a benign separation of life paths, it still hurts to see someone you once cared about frozen in time in a picture. This is a section of songwriting that feels often neglected. So many songs are about love or romantic relationships, but most relationships in your life aren't like that. Friends come and go too, and sometimes losing a friend can be more devastating than any breakup. Yeah, like at the beginning of this when Trevor said, friends that break your fart. (laughs) (laughs) And it made me very uncomfortable. And now we are not... Oh no, it's friends that smell my farts. That's what it was. Sorry. I had to to make sure he said the right Not intentionally. It's like more of an accident. (laughs) Okay. Say what you will is the best track on here. It builds to a momentous acceptance of oneself, but the road to it is minimal production-wise. At times, James Blake's voice is the only thing present. His acapella singing is magnificent. It showcases the perfection of beautiful sadness that he's made a career off of. This is actually the peak of the track. While the instrumentation builds up as time goes on, it's the emptiness in Blake's acceptance with that that makes the track whole, finally removing other people's opinions from his head and going down his own role. Funeral is similar to Say What You Will in a minimal skeletal sense and how Blake just builds this overwhelming beauty with little instrumentation. Talking about how his relationship is failing and comparing that to being live at your own funeral, the whole track is the last glimmer of hope as he promises to change. The Slow Tie bonus version only adds to this track with a very intimate verse from Slow Tie where he describes being neglected over and over again in the hope that he's lost along the way because of it. I don't know why this wasn't the initial version on the album. Instead, was released later a couple days as a deluxe version yeah i i don't know why he had to release an entire deluxe album just to add one song (laughs) actually not even one song just one verse on a song really every once in a while i feel like we need a solo james blake album to remind us that while he is a wildly successful producer he's also a very talented solo artist in his own right I also feel like James Blake needs that reminder as well. Although there are some more overproduced, underwhelming tracks on here, like the annoying chipmunk vocal-ridden I'm So Blessed You're Mine, for the most part, Blake feels like he's hit a stride. The highs are higher than the lows are low. His features all work well with him, especially SZA, and he seems to have a higher confidence in his own vocals and production value. He really shines over this more skeletal production, and I can only hope he continues this path into the future. Ouch. And finally, for this episode, our review on the Floating Points, Pharaoh Sanders, and London Symphony Orchestra collab, Promises. When Movement 1 of Promises first begins, there is only silence. Finally, we hear this same seven-note phrase that will accompany us through the nine, actually eight, movements of Promises. Playing on synthesizer, piano, and the dominating harpsichord, Sam Shepard sets the scene for the rest of the dream journey that we're about to embark on. And that's exactly what this project is, a dream. Collaboration is what music is all about, and here we see two artists that couldn't be further from one another on the musical spectrum working together. Sam Shepard, otherwise known as Floating Points, is all about slick digital synths, while the 81-year-old jazz legend and Coltrane sideman, Pharaoh Sanders, is known for his harsh, abrasive tenor sax sound. 
throw in the London Symphony Orchestra, and you've got a recipe for success, albeit a weird and unexpected one. Promises is what a solidified piece sounds like, a flowing contemporary classical album that continually returns to an opening motif. Starting out as a simple flourish of keys, it is expanded on a leash to make sure that you don't get too lost in the world being established. While you always may be in range of where you started, it never feels overly repetitive. It feels natural and gives the piece a nice palate cleanser to prepare the listener for new explorations. What I like most about Promises is that each movement has its own identity. Movement 3 is all about the beautiful harmony Shepard creates with his digital instruments. His lush chords dominate the mix, interspersed with bells and bright improvised synth passages. Movement 4 then takes you off guard with the sudden but brief addition of Sanders' voice. He imitates classical guitar or bebop sax with wordless phrases throughout the intro of the movement. Sanders is surprisingly light and nimble, and his phrases make musical sense instead of just sounding like gibberish. When I first heard this movement, I actually thought it was Reggie Watts doing that. His subsequent solo is longing and contemplative, with more vibrato in this passage than what he's given over the course of the whole piece. Movement 5, then, feels more like the musical conversation that I've been waiting for. Pharaoh Sanders riffs over a lush background, sometimes using a more freeform or bebop style, while Shepard's beautiful synths call to mind the scenery of a Studio Ghibli film, his chords rising and crashing over top of Sanders like a wave. As the movement fades out from Sanders' harsh sax solo with a quiet arpeggiated piano, calling to mind the central motif from Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, or even that of a quiet music box. This is one of the most calm sections of the piece, but the minor arpeggios feel foreboding when contrasted to the major key central motif, like something bigger is coming soon. The high-pitched synths at the end of Movement 3 make you feel weightless. As the pitch elevates, so do you. Movement 4 takes you to a new alien world with Pharaoh Sanders used to voice. It's a light and bubbly surprise before the sweet and sultry tones of sax return, which proceed to get brassier as Movement 5 begins, then ending to leave room for something new on Movement 6, the beautiful strings. Movement 6 opens up with our motif, this time accompanied by solo violin. And let me set the stage for what I was thinking this whole time. When I listen to this movement, I think of walking across a vast desert with nothing in sight. Actually, uh, to be honest, I picture the PS3 game Journey. The beautifully sad violin is the only thing present, calling to mind some of the more lush, string-heavy sections of a Silver Mount Zion's masterpiece track, 13 Angels. More strings begin to join in the mix, some playing in harmony, some playing their own melodic lines, almost like a Tower of Babel situation. Finally, the whole orchestra joins together to play the soaring unison melody. It's kind of Eastern-inspired, just playing into the desert imagery, leaving me feeling like I just stumbled across the ruins of a forgotten civilization, and I can still hear their music in the air. This section makes me feel like I'm walking through the desert city streets, listening to musicians playing and vendors calling out their wares. The orchestra swiftly crescendos, leaving Shepard's initial motif in the background. All the while, Sanders' saxophone trills sound like a whirlwind in the distance, getting closer and closer, louder and louder. Some of the strings start to trill with him until finally all of the instruments are trilling wildly as I stand in the midst of this sandstorm, taking cover until everything just stops. When I look back at my discovery, nothing is there but waves of sand. After the cinematic masterpiece of Movement 6, Movement 7 feels tonally opposite of what we just heard. Instead of placing focus on the orchestra, the strings are nowhere to be found here. Instead, this is a floating points movement, with Shepard filling up the space with all sorts of electronic sounds and synths. I can picture the outer space society this might take place in. 
Everything is chrome-plated with satellites and stars dotting the sky, almost like a piece of 1950s sci-fi or an episode of the Jetsons. Here, Shepard takes a brief foray into what has been described as abstract psychedelia. Finally, Sanders busts in with this final frenzied solo, almost sounding like a cavalry horn or cavalry charge breaking up the digital landscape with an analog sound that's teeming with life and autonomy. This is the last time we'll hear from Sanders for the rest of the piece. Movement 6 is almost overwhelming, like each second is saturated with the most breathless excitement you can bear, having the loudest moment of the album so far before suppressing the excitement with silence and returning to the motif. At this point, you are overloaded, leading to moment 7, which is moment 6 put in a context that you can't understand. It's like if moment 6 was suddenly a foreign language and presented to you again. The chirping simps feel like I'm listening to an alien interpretation of movement 6. I can't decipher any particular space in the track. There's no environment, just flashing. Movement 8 is a chill down from movement 7 with a great organ before the final or first Big Bang on Movement 9. The last two movements for me are admittedly not my favorites, but they still have elements I like. Movement 8 is back to Shepard, who is now playing the organ in a more southern church-influenced sound. It feels as though um, I'm in an empty church after a service has ended, but the traces of some religious experience are still buzzing in the air, like static electricity. This part is good, but in the second half of this movement, there are a series of false endings that feel more frustrating than amusing, especially on the last false ending, which has a little too much of a silence to make it seem intentional. By now, the central motif has faded away, and the only thing you can hear sounds like barely audible breathing. I'm not sure if that was intentional or not, it sounds really weird. Movement 9 opens with the strings slowly coming back to life, crescendoing into a chord that I can only describe as unsatisfying. Aside from this minor complaint, the rest of the piece was a joy to listen to, but I think the setbacks only hit harder because they're right at the end. While Movement 9 may not be the most fitting conclusion, I like to view this album as a loop. That's why I said it was the first Big Bang. Even though I don't think it's meant to be, the intense sounds fade out leading to silence. Then you can go straight back to Movement 1 and the opening silence and motif come in, and it sounds like the album never stopped. It can just keep on going for infinity. Even though you just sat through a 46-minute piece, you feel like you can run the loop again and not get tired of it. Movement 9 is kind of like a phoenix. It's the sharp explosion of the album that can be viewed as the send-off for the album that leads it into life again. When you view the structure of the album as circular, it's actually the fiery death of the album, so it can be reborn again from the ashes of its own flame, just like the Phoenix. Promises has really grown on me as the year went on. I first listened to it when it initially came out, and I remember enjoying it, but I couldn't exactly pick out any parts I was super gung-ho about. Upon revisiting it later in the year, I can't get enough of this project. I'm in awe that something of this caliber even worked. Uh, today, ironically, is the anniversary, the 10th year anniversary of the Metallica and Lou Reed collab album, Lulu, which was uh, hailed as a critical failure. It was awful. Pharaoh Sanders hasn't put out a project in over 10 years, and he's still in top form. Floating Points has such intuition as an artist and composer to understand what sounds and arrangements will allow both of them to shine, and how to properly utilize a full orchestra at his disposal. Sometimes these uh, intergenerational crossovers don't really go that well, and all I can say is I'm glad that this crossover didn't go the way of Lou Reed and Metallica. And that wraps up our latest episode of the Anthony and Todd Show. Thanks again for listening, everybody. This has been the Trains Are Scary, Make Sure They Stay on the Tracks episode. 
where I've discovered a new phobia of some sort that's very specific specific to the intro of this episode. And I have to thank Trevor for that. He's the friend that broke my heart, and he promised me to not talk about the trains, and now I have a talk memory of trains going off the tracks. Does any of that make sense? No. No. But I tried to incorporate everything. If you want to follow us on social media, find us at Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Anthony Todd. You can find Trevor on Twitter at Alistair McCowish. You can find me on Twitter at The Vincent Short. I have a new album out, Layer Effects, Songs to Inspire Creativity. It's on Spotify and Apple Music. You can find it on those services right now. And till next time, guys, I've been Vincent. I'm Trevor. And see ya, boyos. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. 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 Thank you. Goodbye.